Okay, welcome back. How's it all going? Are we all present? <laughs> so I thought I'd give a little um, uh, talk on the, uh, the practice reading that we read out today um, by <clears throat> Hakuin Akaku, a very famous um, Zen teacher from the 18th century. He was born in 1685 and he lived till 1768. And um, he was, um, apart from being a Zen teacher, he also, he also wrote poetry and painted. And uh, this very famous painting of the legendary Bodhidharma that he did with the big bulging eyes, which you've probably seen somewhere along the lines. <clears throat> and um, he's... Uh, Probably the two most famous Zen teachers are Dogen, who founded the Soto sect, and uh, Hakun, who was um, a reformer of the, uh, it's called the Rinzai school of Zen, and uh, which was founded by Lin Chi, or Rinzai in Japanese. Um, I'll just say a little bit about Hakun, because um, he, did, he did actually write a, a, an autobiography uh, when he was about 81 years old, not long before he died. And, uh, and there were also some, uh, uh, some biographical pieces that have been passed down. <clears throat> um, in terms of the, uh, the actual, uh, his, his, his standing in the Zen tradition, he was, uh, he kind of liked um, the, uh, what's known as the, the Koan school of Zen or the Rinzai school of Zen. He, he kind of reformed that school and uh, created the uh, the modern uh, koan curriculum in Zen, um, which we don't follow through in the uh, ordinary mind school, but it's still practiced today in the Rinzai school and in a number of uh, Western lay groups as well. He's very famous for the uh, the koan, uh, what is the sound of one hand, which you've probably heard of. Um, he was born in a little village, uh, I think near Mount Fuji somewhere, um, called Hara. And uh, he eventually ended up, uh, you know, travelled for a bit and ended up settling in that same village until he died. He was apparently a fairly uh, uh, sensitive uh, young lad and quite sickly, um, but also quite uh, intellectually gifted. Um, says here in the, uh, I was just doing a bit of background reading on him, and um, from earliest childhood he displayed unusual religious sensibilities. The mere view of clouds rapidly changing over the sea could make him sorrowful, and as early as the age of four he had inklings of the transiency of all earthly things. Is there anything in the world that does not change, he said to have asked his mother. Um, his mother was a pious Buddhist of the Nikiran sect. There was a number like the Zen, there was the Zen sect of Buddhism, and there was a Nikiran sect, and there was a Pure Land sect. There were a number of different schools of Buddhism in these days. And uh, so his mother was a, was a pious Buddhist. Uh, his father apparently was a samurai, which is interesting uh, when we put his uh, when we think of his um, his his style of Zen practice. Um, so, like a sensitive young boy, um, 
close to his mother, I think, but his father a samurai. And um, so he, um, apparently when he was about 10 years old, um, his mother took him along to a visiting uh, Buddhist priest in that particular sect and who was giving a, uh, a sermon on the realms of hell, as you do. <laughs> and apparently he scared poor Hakuin very, very much. Because, um, you know, as, as we do when we're little boys or girls, sometimes we might um, go hunting for birds' eggs or kill ants and he was feeling really guilty about this. And, and the, the images that were painted of the hell realm must have been really horrific. And um, so there was one day when he was, uh, his mother was bathing him in, in the hot water of the bath and he got really frightened because he'd it, it, seen these images of people being, you know, ha having to stay and you know, boil to death in hell in this hot water and he's freaking out. And, he's <laughs> and um, so his mother tried to calm him and told him about the Bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin. And, uh, but so from a very early age, he, 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 uh, he uh, was motivated to become a monk. And um, his family relented and um, about, um, I think he was about 15 when he ordained. It's very usual in those days for people to ordain at a very young age. And um, he, uh, he went along to the local monastery, and, uh, which was a Rinzai monastery. And uh, he'd, um, you know, he, he, he was very familiar with the, what's called the Lotus Sutra, which was a key sutra in his, in his mother's Buddhist practice, where they chanted the name of the sutra. And uh, so he was chanting the name of the sutra. And, uh, but um, he quickly grew disillusioned. Um, and um, <laughs> with uh, the, the sort of, I guess, the, uh, the, the boring nature of monastic life, he was probably only about 17 or 18, and um, and this is this is a kind of characteristic of Hakuin's biography. Actually, it's quite interesting. He, he goes through these periods of ecstasy and then goes really down again. Um, and um, so he um, maybe in these days would have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. <laughs> <laughs> um, he um, so he left the monastery and uh, wandered for a while, and and uh, then he came to this other temple somewhere else and uh, they were drawing out the, 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 the monastic scrolls and things in the sun and there was some Taoist scrolls and some Confucian scrolls and some Buddhists. He was quite confused as to you know what, what, what's the truth, what path should he follow. <coughs> anyway, he, he, uh, he, he picked up a, a book of, uh, of Zen stories and he, he discovered this story about a particular Zen uh, a monastic and teacher who had who practiced his zazen so intensively he would um, he would um, keep himself awake by you know gouging himself with one of those uh, um, 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 what you use for stitching leather with I forget what they're called now but he would stick it in his thigh <laughs> so to make sure he didn't fall asleep and this was this was inspiring to the young Hakuin so he thought I must make greater efforts and uh, he went back to um, the monastery and started to practicing with the teacher and um, and threw himself ardently into his zazen practice and it wasn't long he had what uh, uh, one of his first of, of many um, what are known as um, uh, in Japanese as Kensho or Satori experiences a kind of um, 
uh, sometimes we call them enlightenment experiences, um, where we uh, had this uh, uh, amazing opening, uh, quite a special experience. And uh, so there was one day he was uh, sitting practicing Zazen and he uh, heard the sound of a distant bell which turned into a kind of thunder that went through him and he just had this great awakening experience. Um, he was often, um, his awakening experiences were often with sounds. And uh, so he thought he'd had this, uh, one of the biggest enlightenment experiences in 300 years. And he, he went off to his teacher to, to, he was just so excited to show him and tell him about this experience. And, and uh, his teacher wasn't that, that enthralled, he wasn't, he wasn't that enthusiastic and, he, and uh, he questioned him a little bit and said uh, go back and sit in the cave for longer, you're a cave dwelling demon, go away and um, <laughs> this was a bit of a put down for Hakuin um, but you can see one of the dangers of, um, of uh, focusing on um, these special experiences that our, um, our ego can get quickly attached to them so um, when one has an experience, and then oh, I'm quite special now. I've, I've had this wonderful experience, and already sort of reinforces our ego again, which is what we're trying to get rid of in the first place. But, um, so um, Hakuin's life was—he uh, would, uh, you know, he, he practiced again, and he had a number of enlightenment experiences. And there was another famous one that he had when he was about forty, where he um, he was uh, again sitting in zazen and the. Uh, it's the sound of the cicadas, and he just melted, you know, and just broke open, and uh, it was just full of tears coming down his face. His, 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 his sense of ego and self was totally gone, and it was just the sound of the cicadas. And, um, and uh, so eventually he settled down in the, uh, and uh, he became a very famous teacher and, and developed uh, a well known temple. And monastery, and he also was uh, very ecumenical in his approach. He would, he would, you know, he was very open to the other, other Buddhist schools. He spent a lot of time um, uh, with the farmers and, and trying to get the teaching across to working people and lay people. Um, but the other thing about his life was quite interesting was that. Um, uh, for a number of periods in his life, he would fall into these really deep depressions. And um, he actually went along once to a Taoist master uh, who gave him some sort of healing meditation practices to do, which he wrote about, and um, which helped him to um, heal from the Zen sickness. And um, so, you know, I, I try and put his life together, and I, kind of, I get the sense of which, you know, he had this. Um, this very pious, compassionate man, but probably this father who maybe was not too close to, but maybe he wanted, he had this sense of which he had to really, really push himself really hard. And, 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 and uh, you know, one of the dangers of that is, is sometimes, yeah, we can fall into a kind of Zen sickness and, and develop various neuroses because of that, uh, which Haku and himself went through. And probably near the end of his life, he realized that having that really special enlightened experiences, that, that doesn't, that's not just about that at all. So he settled down and really devoted himself to, to teaching others and, uh, and eventually he gained some sense of uh, peace in, in, in that kind of practice. But one of the, uh, the this particular um, 
chant that he's handed down to us um, is uh, um, the uh, chanting praise of Zazen. Probably the English word most equivalent would be ode to Zazen. It's kind of like a, a poem in praise of Zazen. And it's a very, um, it's, it's a lovely kind of uh, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism in a nutshell. Um, right from the first line, um, from the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Um, probably the essence of, 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 of Zen Buddhist teaching, from the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. The same realization that the historical Buddha had when he was sitting under the, the body tree and looked up and saw the morning star and uh, you know had that realization that all beings are inherently perfect just as they are, just like that star. And um, that, that sense in which um, um, there's nothing to seek. We're already awakened. And um, then he goes on to say, like water and ice, so without water there can be no ice. Outsiders, no Buddhas. So it's kind of like a nice metaphor. So um, the water is kind of like our Buddha nature. And, um, but um, is there any difference between beings and Buddhas? So on the one hand, there's no difference between beings and Buddhas. But on the other hand, like, like, sort of like water and ice, there's a difference between ice and water. So there's a sense in which uh, beings are inherently Buddhas, but often they don't realize I know that. This doesn't feel, I don't feel like a Buddha. <laughs> and um, so the, 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 the actual metaphor of ice is quite nice. Um, you could think of um, the ice as representing our hard edges, if you like. And, um, and um, how do we get to notice where our, our hard edges are? It's kind of like the hard edges are the, uh, the sense in which we're bumping up against our sense of separateness, you know, where our ego self, where we're, we're identified with that sense of separateness. And uh, when we experience anger and anxiety or fear, we're bumping up against those kind of or any of those kinds of you know, emotions which are about us, um, we're bumping up against those hard edges, and uh, which shows us we have, to, we have some attachment still to the <coughs> ego self. And so there's some sense in which Zazen itself, when we sit in Zazen, and I think you can actually get a feeling, a natural, <coughs> natural feeling of this, that there's a, a very gradual melting of those hard edges. Uh, you know, we don't focus a lot on doing long retreats in this school of Zen. My teacher does sometimes does three or four days. Uh, um, I, I try and do a five-day session once a year with my my, my friend in Brisbane. But like, um, but normally, but even going on just practicing Zazen like today for three and a half hours, just gives us a sense in which sometimes we just get that sense of how we're just starting to open up and just to melt and just grow a little bit softer and. Uh, we can take we take that back into our everyday life, and uh, have that sense of being more open and more vulnerable and, and less reactive. And uh, so the sense in which the practice of Zazen is almost like you could say the 
the, the samadhi, the focus in, in what, that we're doing in Zazen. It's kind of like burning a little fire underneath us and it's burning away all our ego delusions and, uh, and we're starting to melt. And sometimes, you, you know, you, it may just be a, a moment like that when a sound comes through you and all of a sudden the ego self is totally gone and you're just fully open. And so Zazen is, everything is contained within Zazen. It's the way. Zazen is the way of Zen. It's the way of compassion. It melts us. And then he goes on to say, um, how near the truth, yet how far we seek. Um, like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering on this earth. We endlessly circle the six worlds. And with this sense of being that the truth is somehow over there is you know, it's quite typical of the stories we read about people going off on their spiritual paths, whether it's the Holy Grail or whether it's enlightenment, the sense in which we have to go on this journey to find what it is we're seeking when it's you know, been here all the time. Um, those two, two lovely metaphors about um, being in water, um, yet still being thirsty, and, um, or wandering poor on this earth. Um, the, um, the, the wandering poor on the earth is based on a little parable, that, which is in the Lotus, Lotus Sutra, um, about a, um, uh, a poor man who, who, who apparently, uh, you know, he... Uh, he wandered off from his father's home when he was quite young and, and lived in poverty for many, many years. And um, um, when um, about 50 years later, the, um, the father saw him wandering through the streets, uh, lost and poor. And, uh, and of course, the, the son doesn't recognize the father. And um, so the father um, um, uh, sort of... Um, tries to approach him, but the son gets really uh, worried that he's going to try and put him into some form of um, enforced labor or something. So there's this sense in which the son is frightened of the father. And um, so the father devises this scheme. He asks this other man to offer the, to set him free and offer him work. And eventually he starts working for another guy on his father's estate. And, um, and gradually over time, the son gets to know the father and they become friends. And... Um, and then, uh, and then the father starts to, you know, call him son, as you would do to a younger man, and, and an intimacy develops. And eventually, when the father is actually dying, he reveals the truth to his son, and uh, who then realizes all this wealth that he, that he had all the time. But it's a very nice story. It's a, like almost like if we see our true nature as being the father, and. Uh, but often we're like the sun, sort of lost and wandering and feeling poor. And, uh, and we're all, almost frightened of uh, realizing the richness within. So it's a lovely story. I mean, the other um, kind of, um, um, you know, little fable we have, that we, you know, the grass is always greener. 
um, on the other side of the fence. So I live in the promised land and there's lots of cows there. And I go for my walks and often you see the cows sticking their heads through the fence to get to that little piece of grass over there, which looks much more yummy and tastier than the one that's right next to them. And uh, so there's that sense in which, you know, we, when, we, when we're starting off on these paths, we always feel as if we're lacking something. And uh, we go in search, whether it's, you know, external things like a car or a house. But even when it comes to this, you know, we start on some kind of spiritual path, there's still that sense of, you know, you know he or she's got it and I don't have it and I've got to, you know, get the right guru or the right teacher and get what they've got. So there's always this sense of having to search somewhere else for what's always here. Um, it's a very, another... Um, form in which that takes is a very famous koan in, uh, in Zen practice, which Hakuin himself uh, started practicing with called, uh, the koan's called Mu, M-U. It's got nothing to do with cows, but um, the, uh, the, that koan is about where the, uh, the monk goes to the, uh, the teacher and says, does a dog have Buddha nature? And it's kind of like in that question, it's kind of implying, I'm a bit of a dog, how could, how could I have Buddha nature, you know? I'm just a miserable, you know, I don't know anything. And uh, so it's a sense in which that question, you know, how could I possibly have Buddha nature? I don't feel that, you know, I just feel something you know, wrong with me or lacking with me. And, uh, and then he goes on, so we end up endlessly circling the, the, what are called in Buddhism the six worlds, this idea in Buddhist cosmology that we migrate or transmigrate through different worlds. Um, the worlds are the world of hell, um, the world of um, 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 fighting demons, um, the world of animals, the world of humans, um, the world of, um, of um, divas or godlike beings. Um, and the realm of the hungry ghosts. But from a, from a, from these are sort of you know, traditional Buddhist descriptions of these different worlds, but from a, from a Buddhist psychology, it can sort of basically make sense out of that by you know, the hungry ghost realm is that sense of never being satisfied or wanting something and being greedy. Um, the realm of hell is when we're you know, locked in our own hell, whatever that form that takes, or fighting demons where we're wanting to get revenge and... Uh, and even we can sometimes have be in really happy places and uh, and so forth. But like in the Buddhist sort of uh, scheme of things, the human realm is seen as the best place for, in terms of getting that perfect balance um, in order to uh, walk the path. So that's the kind of the six worlds he's talking about there. But then he hits it right on the head here when he talks about the um, the cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. You know, right there, right. That's that mean. What we say in our school is we're caught in a self-centered dream, one of the chants we chant at the end of sitting practice. And so this, this sense of being separate, and the, and, uh, which we, um, one of the main causes of self-generated suffering. And um, so the gateway to freedom um, is Zazen. Um, And uh, so it ends up by saying, you know, we wander from dark path to dark path. How can we be free from birth and death? How can we be free from this constant emotional reactivity we get caught into all the time? The sense of never, you know, quite being there, the sense of something lacking all the time. And then basically then describes the, um, the practice of Zazen. 
he praises it, he, um, and he says it's beyond all praises. It's, um, it's beyond all the, the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds, the right way of living. Basically saying the whole of the, of the path all come from Zazen. And uh, so once that we hear that, um, the invitation and the, and, the, and, the, and the opportunity to practice Zazen, um, the gateway to freedom is just here, just this, right now. Um, Zazen Samadhi. Samadhi is sometimes translated as concentration. That's quite good. It's almost like sometimes it's translated as being one with the object of meditation. There's a sense in which Samadhi is kind of like when we're just, you know, just bringing our sense of um, focus to the breath and to the sounds and to the sensations. Just that sense of becoming one in that moment where our usual sense of separateness just drops off a little bit and uh, you know, we, just, we just hear the bird, just the car sound goes through us. Um, there's a sense of the fullness and the emptiness, the inside and the outside dropping off, it's just all one. Um, so there's no gap between the subject and the object. We no longer feel there's a me inside here and there's a you outside there. That's the Zazen Samadhi. And um, so all is contained within it, like we say in our practice, being just this moment, compassion's way. And um, he goes on um, and, and, and talks about um, <coughs> the uh, precepts and so on, and that there's a certain ethical path in Zen and Buddhism. But you can summarize that path as do no harm, do no harm to self or others. And... Um, so it's, it's from, again, that whole ethical path comes from the Zazen practice. So, and Zazen is not something we just do when we're sitting on our cushion as well. We, we, then we bring that into our everyday life and that's where we actually start to get some feedback as to whether our practice is actually making a difference in our lives. Um, yeah. You know, it's easy to sit in Zazen in the meditation hall and be one with the sound of a dove, but it's not so easy to step into our everyday life and come home and be one with the sound of a critical voice. So it's when we get back into our everyday life and we notice where our hard edges are again, and that reactivity, that like maybe we can, that the practice of Zazen just gradually over time starts to enter into our lives and we get less reactive. And one of the, one of the results of practice, if you like, we're not fo- we don't focus on results. Zazen is like a no-goal practice. It's always now. But you know, some of those results are about less reactivity. Um, and finally, he talks about when we, take, when we turn inward, um, it's a very common metaphor in Zor- taking the, the backward step. We, Rather than focusing outward all the time on objects or on thoughts or on things we have to do, we take the backward step and focus inwards. It's almost like in Zazen we're becoming aware of awareness itself. Like we're really shining the light inwardly. So then he goes, when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, and our own self is no self. 
we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to oneness is thrown open. So that the sense in which when we take that backward step, when we're going beyond thought, and letting go of thought, we just awareness of awareness, and we start to get that sense of no self. In, in, in Mahayana Buddhism, often talks about emptiness and uh, you know, form and emptiness. Um, the sense in which form is emptiness, emptiness is form. The sense that it's just saying basically everything is impermanent, everything is changing. And were we, we can't sort of grab onto anything other than find our home right there in that impermanence. That impermanence itself is Buddha nature. And um, that's the emptiness, just impermanence, constant change, but a sense of spaciousness there. And um, it doesn't mean to say we, we go through life like with no self anymore. I mean, but we go through life carrying our, our identity, our ego self, more lightly because we know that right at the bottom it doesn't really exist in reality, but we need it to navigate social relationships. And so, um, no self doesn't mean we get rid of ourselves, but it means that we, like the two sides of the coin, like we are able to um, go with the flow of life more easily with less resistance. And when the inevitable, um, even doesn't matter how enlightened we are, you know, there are going to be times when we feel the inevitable sorrow of loss. And um, we can flow more easily with that loss when we're coming from that place of no self. And so he goes on, so how vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi, how bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. The moon's often a symbol of, of, of that um, the, the, you know, enlightenment or nirvana or just that, just this, the sense in which that, that, that penetrates everything, the full moon. And um, so what is there outside us? There's nothing outside us. One mind is the totality of everything. We can never step outside our mind. There's no outside to our mind. What is there we lack? There's nothing we lack. Every moment is complete. Um, so nirvana is not something we chase to extinguish our suffering. And nirvana is being awake right here, right now. And realizing this very earth where we sit or stand is what he says here, the lotus land, the symbol of, of nirvana, if you like. And this very body is the Buddha. Nirvana is right here in samsara. So it's a beautiful, um, beautiful um, poem that expresses um, a lot of Buddhist, Zen Buddhist wisdom in um, a number of stanzas. So. We'll just sit for a few moments. <laughs> 